Well, it's often been said that our prayers show our dependence on God and our trust in Him. Or to put it the other way, a lack of prayer shows a lack of dependence on and a lack of trust in God. What we pray and how we pray and how often we pray reveals a lot about us. Our prayers show what we think about God and what we think about ourselves. And that's why it's so important for us to look at what the Lord taught us to pray. He gives us the right perspective on prayer and He gives us the right focus. And our verses this morning are from Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 11 to 15. And so if you could, please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. We've been looking at this passage for a number of weeks now. We saw that the first three petitions in verses 9 and 10 center on God. And we learn from this that prayer is not ultimately about us. Prayer is not ultimately about our needs and what we want. It's about God and His glory. Our desire when we pray should be first and foremost for God's name to be hallowed. Verse 9 says, pray like this then, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This means that our prayers are to be very much like our lives. Both are ultimately to be for God's glory. We're to live for God's glory and we're to pray for God's glory. And so just like God comes first in our lives, Because He is worthy, so He comes first in our prayers, and we pray, hallowed be Your name. And then we also pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are those who look forward to the establishing of of God's kingdom. Just like God rules in heaven in what we call His universal kingdom, so we long for the day when Christ will return to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And so our hope is a a heavenly hope. We are citizens of heaven waiting for the heavenly kingdom to come. But until the kingdom comes, we have another God-centered prayer. We pray for your will, for God's will to be done. And so we submit our will to His will. We recognize that He knows best what we need, what, what, what is necessary in this world. And so we submit our will to His will. And then the next three petitions, after we've kind of focused on God and and focused on His glory, His goals, His desires, His will, the next three petitions when we pray, when we pray like this, they cover our needs. We start with God, His will, His kingdom, His glory, but we also, we pray for ourselves. We're concerned about ourselves too. We want God to be honored through our lives. And so pray for ourselves and we look to God to help us. Here's an amazing thing. God is glorified as He helps us in every area of our lives. God wants us to come to Him for help with everything in our lives. And He invites us to depend on Him and to trust in Him. And so our Lord teaches us to ask for God's help for, for our physical and for our spiritual needs. All of our needs are covered in the, the three requests in our text. 
We're going to look at verses 11 to 15 today. All of our needs are covered there. Verse 11 says, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. These three petitions deal with our physical and our spiritual needs. They address our past needs, our present needs, and our future needs. We need bread for today. We need the the daily bread. And then we need forgiveness for our past sins, for the things that we have done and need forgiveness for. And then we need help to fight temptation and to fight evil going forward in time. And so we have our past, present, and future needs, our physical needs and our spiritual needs all addressed in these three requests. Our needs in verse 14 and 15, our, our Lord teaches us that, that when we pray, we should pray and come to the Father with an awareness of our need for forgiveness. And so we come humbly asking for forgiveness from God and granting forgiveness to others. And so we'll look at our text kind of under two headings today, but really under four main points. First, we're going to look at the three petitions, and I called it three petitions for all of our needs. Three petitions for all of our needs. The first one is pray for provision. Second, pray for pardon. And third, pray for protection. And then we'll look at verses 14 and 15, and and, and the Lord comes back to this idea of forgiveness, and we're going to call that the posture for all of our petitions. So we had the the petitions for all our need and now the posture for all of our petitions. And that's going to be number four, that we are to forgive and be forgiven. And so pray for provision, pray for pardon, pray for protection, and then forgive and be forgiven. And all of this should teach us how to pray. Again, verse nine began, pray like this. Pray then like this. And so this will teach us also how dependent we are on God. God wants us to trust Him for our every need, and He teaches us here to ask Him for everything and for anything. Can you see it already in the text there? God is teaching us to ask Him for our daily bread. He's teaching us to ask for forgiveness, and He's teaching us to ask for deliverance from evil. He teaches us to ask because as our Father, He desires to answer these prayers. He loves to glorify Himself by caring for His children. And so let's go then into the first petition for all of our needs. Number one, let's, we're to pray for provision. Pray for provision in verse 11. Jesus says that we're to pray like this in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And what's amazing as we kind of come to this verse is that the Lord transitions from God to us here so, so simply and so easily. Right? We were just praying and, and being taught to pray for God's glory, for His kingdom, for His plan to come to fruition, for His will to be done on earth, and all of it is really to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we were, we were thinking about this heavenly kind of situation. 
And we were focused on the loftiest things possible, the God of heaven, his ultimate plans for the universe. We were praying for heavenly things to be done on earth. We were praying for heaven to come down to earth as it were. And those first three requests were centered on God, but, but now we come to our needs, even our most basic needs for bread for the day. And what we learn from this is that God, who always pursues His own glory and all that He does, God who is infinitely above us and exalted, this great God who is worthy of all praise, He cares about our physical needs, even our most basic physical needs. You see, God's honor and our provision, they go hand in hand. They're not separate things. When God provides for His children, it shows His compassion and His grace. And God cares, listen to this, God cares even about the little things. And so we who put His honor and His glory first, we're invited to come and ask even for our littlest needs. We're to say, give us our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Now there's some uncertainty in this word translated daily. It only appears here and in the parallel verse in Luke 11 verse 4. And we see in, in all of Greek literature, we never see this word except for here and in Luke 11.4 and then in places after that where people were kind of relying on these verses and, and maybe like copying it or, or quoting that verse or something like that. So we really never see this word. People sometimes wonder if the Lord or if Matthew made this word up, kind of coined this term. Never before. Now there's different theories about what this word means based on possible root words that it's based on. It could be the word, it could be based on the word for and the word for being. So for being. And the, and the idea would, then would be give us today the bread for existence. Give us the bread for our being. The bread that we need for living, for existence. Daily could, another way th- that this could be is it, it could be based on a shortening of the phrase for the following. And the idea is for the, for the following day or, or the next, which in Acts is used that there's a little phrase in Acts that's used to describe the next day. It's just literally the, the rest, the next, the, and it's either the next day or the next night, depending on when, uh, what time it's used. And so if the word comes from that, it would mean that we're asking for, we're asking today, for the bread we need for tomorrow or for bread needed in the near future. If you asked it in the morning, it would be for the bread needed in the afternoon or for the rest of the day. If you asked it in the evening, you'd be praying for bread for the next day. But either way, daily seems to kind of catch the idea. We're to ask for each day for what we need for the day. Now, this might seem strange to us because most of us, and I, I think that this is true for most of you, most of you have enough meat in the freezer and enough potatoes in the cold storage to last for the whole year. Now, I guess it's kind of getting time for potato season. Um, you know, maybe you're running out of potatoes. It's almost, but you probably have enough to plant the new potatoes for the batch next year. But most people in Jesus's day were paid on a daily basis and they needed to find employment for each day to provide their daily loaf of bread. 
But even though we're paid monthly and we have money in the bank, we are still dependent on God. And I want you to think about that. We are still dependent on God. Think about this. Your car could break down. Your freezer could stop working. A disaster could ruin the stockpiles of goods in the pantry. The potatoes could rot. The the stores could spoil. The bank account could be drained at any time. And so when we think about these things, we recognize that we need God's help as much as anyone. And so Jesus teaches us to ask Him to provide, to ask the Lord to provide and to supply our needs. And if He invites us to come to Him for bread, then how much more will He provide for the other things? It's kind of like a lesser to the greater. If He'll provide for the littlest thing, then how much more will He provide for the greater things that we need? Now, we're not told that that God will will meet all of our wants, but we are told that He will provide what we need. And if God will provide for our smallest physical need of daily bread, then surely He will care for our other more significant physical needs. Now, as we think about this and as we pray this prayer, we should ask, well, how will our Father answer this prayer? How will God answer this prayer? What should we expect to happen in answer to this prayer? Remember, God answers prayers. Well, typically, God will answer this prayer through the regular means of providing a job, of enabling you to work hard, enabling you to keep that job. God will answer and He will ensure that the farmer, and, and just think about the chain that's involved in this, He will ensure that the, the farmer has the right weather so that food grows, so that harvests happen, so that goods are, are bought and sold, and you will have the ability to buy ingredients to make bread or to, to buy bread at the store. And all the way through this chain of events, as we think about this, we really are dependent on God. As we maybe learned when there was the the risk of toilet paper shortage last year, remember that? It's like, whoa, I'm really dependent on this whole supply chain that sometimes I just take for granted. But God will answer our prayers through the by by kind of overseeing this entire chain of human events. Actually, I want you to turn with me here to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we see in Deuteronomy 8 our dependence on the Lord and just how He works through means to supply for us. Deuteronomy 8, let's look at verse, starting at verse 11. It says, take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirst, uh, thirsty ground where there was no water, 
who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that He might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest your hearts say, My power and the might of My hand have gotten Me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And what I want you to see from this passage is that we need to be careful in our wealth that we not forget the Lord. We need to remember that He is the one who provides our daily bread. Even when we've been negligent in prayer, it is Him who provides for our needs. And so we need to remember that He is our provider and He is the one that cares for us. He is the one that gives us power to get wealth. He enables us to work and provides opportunities for employment. And He does it all in answer to this prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And so whether we are in trials or whether we are in good times, we are dependent on God more than we probably realize. And we should pray, therefore, for our daily bread and for our other physical needs. And when we think about this prayer and, and how we should pray it, I think Agur's prayer in Proverbs 30 is helpful. Proverbs 30 and verse 7, he says this, he says, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. That was the first thing. And then the second thing he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And so Agur is saying, Lord, keep me in a position where I will depend on you. And I think that's a good prayer for all of us to pray. Keep me in a position where I will depend on you. And really, we can do that whether we have wealth or whether we don't have wealth, but we need to be people who are dependent on the Lord. Whether we are rich or poor, we should pray, give me this day my daily bread. But before we move into the, the next verse, and let's go, actually, let's go back to Matthew. <clears throat> before we should, we move on, we should kind of note one more thing about this prayer. And this really applies to the to all of the requests, but, but look again at the text. It says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. And then verse 14, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so notice that it's not give me this day my daily bread, forgive me my debts and lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. See, in all of these requests, we are praying together, each, and, and we're praying for each other. And so when we pray this prayer, we're not praying this just for ourselves and our own personal needs. We're praying for the Christian community, for one another. We're, we're kind of in this life together, and we are those who care for one another. And so we pray for one another for the provision of our bread, for the forgiveness of our sins, and even that, that we would be guarded from temptation and that we would be delivered from evil. And we pray that for one another. 
We pray together and we pray for one another. And so that was number one, pray for, <clears throat> pray for whatever it was you guys know. Number two, pray for pardon. Uh, pray for pardon. Uh, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Number two, pray for pardon. Now we've moved on here from our physical to our spiritual needs. And this request kind of trips up people sometimes. And and we need to remember who is praying this as we kind of look at this verse. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is not the prayer of someone coming for salvation. Although someone coming for salvation would also need to pray for their sins to be forgiven. This is a prayer of a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is a prayer of one who has all the characteristics mentioned in the Beatitudes. And so we learn a couple of things from this. First, disciples of Christ still sin. And as disciples of Christ, we are still aware of sin even after we are saved. And so we pray daily, forgive us our sins. <clears throat> this is a daily prayer. Forgive us our sins. And second, we need to see that, that this is sometimes different than what we might typically think of in regard to forgiveness. This is something different than what we typically think of when we think of forgiveness. I think for most of us, when we think of forgiveness, we think of justification. We think of verses like 2 Corinthians 5.21, that for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was made to be sin. He was treated as though He had sinned every sin that we will ever sin. Romans 6.23, the, the wages of sin is death. Jesus died to pay our penalty. We think of maybe second or first Peter 2.24 that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree and by his wounds you have been healed. When we think of forgiveness, we think of Colossians 2.13 and 14 that you who were dead in your transgressions or sorry, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. In 1 John 2 and verse 12, John says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. Now note the present tense of John there. Your sins are forgiven for His namesake. I think when we think about the forgiveness of sins, we often would think about something like Hebrews 8, 10 to 12 or Jeremiah 31, 34. Listen to Jeremiah 31, 34, quoted in Hebrews 8, quoted in Hebrews 10. Just the part of that verse says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so it seems like there's this one-time forgiveness of their iniquity, and then God says, I will remember their sin no more. 
And that's if you are in the new covenant, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, if you are a Christian, God will remember your sin no more. And because God will remember our sins no more, Romans 8.1 applies to us, therefore there is, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when we talk about justification and about the forgiveness of God that delivers us from the penalty of sin, we believe that God forgives all of our sins. That God forgives even our future sins. And when Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, all of our sins were future at that time. Just think about that. When Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, we weren't even born yet. And so all of our sins were future sins at that time. We weren't even born, but we existed in God's mind and God knew our sins and Jesus paid the penalty for those sins. No one will pay for those sins ever again. Jesus paid it all. <clears throat> our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. There is no condemnation, nor will there ever be condemnation. God views us as righteous in Jesus Christ. God's view of me doesn't change based on how well I did today or how well I think I did. I am justified in Christ. I am counted righteous. I am declared righteous. But the question is, if I am justified and if God remembers my sins no more, what is this about asking for forgiveness? Why do we ask for forgiveness if we are already forgiven? Can we lose our status as forgiven? And I would just say to that, absolutely not. We cannot and we will not ever lose our status as forgiven. If we are alive with Christ, all of our trespasses are forgiven. In the same way that we were joined to Christ by faith apart from our works, so we remain in Christ by faith apart from our works. We were connected to, to, we were connected to Christ by grace and we will remain connected to Him by grace. We will remain in Christ by grace. We don't go in and out of Christ. We're not alive with Christ and then dead without Him, and then alive with Him, and then oops, dead again. That's not how salvation works. And so the, the forgiveness that's in view in this prayer is not what we would call then judicial forgiveness. And I, I hope that, that that makes sense to you. The, the, the prayer that we're praying, the forgiveness that we're asking for, is not judicial forgiveness. We're not to pray daily or, or hourly for, for judicial forgiveness as though if we missed asking for this forgiveness, we would go to hell. That's not how this works. We, we are forgiven in Christ and there is no condemnation. So what is this forgiveness that we're talking about in this text? We would call this instead parental forgiveness. This is not a, a legal thing. This is a relational thing. We ask God's forgiveness because we recognize that our sins, that they still, even though we are counted righteous in Christ, our sins, <clears throat> our, our, our sins, um, our sins offend a holy God. Sin hinders our relationship with God. 
It doesn't end our relationship with God. We don't lose our relationship to, to, with God and then come back and start a new one when we pray this. No, we have a relationship with God. God is and forever will be our Father if we are in Christ. And notice that in this prayer, we're coming to God as Father. He is our Father still. But because we recognize that our sins offend a holy God, we maintain our relationship by asking for forgiveness. He's still our Father, even though we sinned, but we ask for forgiveness and we enjoy then this fellowship that we have with God when we ask for forgiveness. Now, so far, as we've been kind of talking about this, I've been using the word sin. But if you look at the text, it actually says, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive or have forgiven our debtors. When Jesus comes back to forgiveness in in verse 14, he uses the word trespass. Uh, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. A trespass is a false step. It's a a false step that makes one fall. It's a a violation of a moral standard. It's an offense. It's a wrongdoing. And, and, and therefore, a, a trespass is just basically a sin. The parallel text in Luke 11, verse 4 says, Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And so the word sins is there in Luke 11, verse 4. But from that, we see that the debts and sins really go together. Now, when, when we see this word debt, forgive us our debts, it's really an interesting word used here. A debt is something that is owed. What is owed is, in a debt is, is something that is due. It's something that's required and it, it ought to be paid. And so this word debts is mostly used in scripture for financial things. If, if I'm in debt, then I owe the person that I'm in debt to and, and typically I owe them some money. I owe the debtor payment, whatever that payment is. And what this shows then is that in the, the moral realm, we owe God our obedience. We owe God our obedience. We owe Him our lives. We owe Him holy and godly living. And if we come short of perfection in holy and godly living, if we come short of what we owe God, then we are in debt. And it's a debt that we can't pay because we owe perfection and we can never earn more than perfection. And so if we didn't achieve perfection, which we never do, then we need forgiveness. We need the forgiveness of that debt. We are in debt to God and we can't pay and so we need forgiveness. And the word for forgiveness means to release something, to let something go, to cancel or pardon someone from the legal or moral consequences of something. And so we're asking God to send away our debt of falling short of His holy standard. Forgive us, Father, for not doing what we should have done. And forgive us also for doing what we should not have done. We owe God our obedience. We've been bought with a price. And when we fail to achieve perfection, when we fail to live utterly Christ-like in every thought, action, and attitude of our lives, we need to ask God for forgiveness, not to be saved again, but to enjoy fellowship with Him. 
And this would be similar then to what the Lord illustrated in John chapter 13. Remember in John chapter 13 when the Lord washed the disciples' feet? Jesus said to, to Peter, the one who is bathed, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. And so the disciples were already clean. They were, they were clean, but they, they needed their feet washed. Now, of course, Judas is the one who wasn't clean and he was soon to leave in that moment, but, but the disciples were already clean and that, and that's kind of a picture of us. Our sins have already been forgiven. We are already clean. Once and for all, our sins have been dealt with, but we need to be cleansed. We need our, our feet washed. We need our sins forgiven so that we can continue to enjoy fellowship with God. Now notice we ask, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now I want to look at that second part of verse 12 when we get to verses 14 and 15. So let's go now to the the third petition. If we have sinned and we're aware of it and, and we've asked God to forgive us, then we will also ask Him to help us to not do it again. And we'll ask Him to keep us from sin and to protect us from sin. And that's exactly what follows in our next position. And this is number three in the outline. Number three, pray for protection. Pray for protection, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a prayer for protection from future sins. We're to ask God to keep us from opportunities to sin and to rescue us from evil. Now, a number of questions arise in this, in this short verse. And the first one is, what does the word translated temptation mean? That word translated temptation can mean either temptation to evil or it can simply refer to a, a test or a trial with no evil in view whatsoever. And so are we asking God to lead us not into opportunities for evil or to keep us from trials and tests? Now tied to this is another question that arises and and let's just go to James chapter 1. James 1.13, this is a, another question. How does this request fit with James 1 and verse 13? James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now the same word tempted is used in both texts. James 1.13 says, God does not tempt anyone. He cannot even be tempted. And because of this, some wonder if, if Jesus means lead us not into testing. Not, not lead us not into temptation, but lead us not into testing. But that doesn't seem to fit either because testing is one of the ways that we grow. We saw that in, even in Romans 5 this morning in our scripture reading. And we see it also in James verse 2, James 1 and verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet 
trials. And that's that same word, temptations there, when you meet trials. And here, it's referring not to temptations, but to, tri- to trials. Uh, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So I think the best view then is to view this or to see this with the next line in Matthew 6.13, but deliver us from evil. In other words, I think actual temptation to evil is in view when we pray, lead us not into temptation. But we aren't saying that God is the one who tempts us. We're only recognizing when we pray that, that God is sovereign. And He leads us wherever we go. That we recognize when we pray that God is in control and we're asking Him not to bring us into a situation where temptation to sin is likely to occur. And what this means then is that we recognize, and this is important for us, we recognize our own weakness. We recognize our own weakness and we're aware of how likely we are to sin if we were in the wrong situation. It's not that we want to sin, we, we don't love sin, but, but that's exactly why we pray. We know that we are vulnerable, we know that we are weak and we are ignorant, and so we're praying in this prayer to, for the Lord to protect us from temptation and situations that could lead us into sin. And so we're to be the opposite of Peter as we see him in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, and, and I guess we could, we could go ahead and turn there as well. Matthew 26, 31. Jesus meeting with his disciples. This is shortly after he washed their feet. Uh, but we're in Matthew here, and, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. I'm in verse 31. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, Peter is, is adamant here, I will never fall away. Even all these other guys do, I won't. And so Peter has really the right conviction. He's committed to stand for the Lord. And we should all have that attitude. Even, even if the whole world falls away, we will stand with the Lord. But the problem is, is that Peter didn't know his own weakness. And he thought he could stand in his own strength. He thought he was better than the other disciples. He thought that he was more committed. Watch out if you think you stand, lest you fall. And Jesus said in verse 34, Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now right after that, Jesus took Peter and James and John with him and he told them in verse 41, he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, Jesus is teaching and he's teaching us to pray 
that we may not enter into temptation. He's, he's teaching us to watch and pray. You see, Peter wasn't ready for that temptation. And we need to be wary of our own overconfidence. We need to be wary of ourselves. And, and one form of overconfidence that we need to watch out for in particular would be a neglect of praying a prayer like this, lead us not into temptation. You see, we need to pray and ask the Lord to keep us from sin and keep us from situations where we are likely to fall. And I wonder how often our sins are connected to the sin of not praying for protection as Jesus instructs us to here. And so we're to pray, lead us not into temptation. Now we know that we will never be able to fully be removed from temptation until we are removed from this world. And therefore, we need to pray the second half of this verse as well, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. And that brings a third interpretive issue in this short little verse. It could be deliver us from evil, or it could be deliver us from the evil one. Now, in my view, to, to limit the prayer only to Satan is, is likely too narrow here. Ultimately, evil came from Satan and it comes through him, but also we have evil in our hearts and we, there's evil in this world. And we want deliverance as disciples of Christ. We want deliverance from all evil, the devil, the world, and the sinful flesh that remains in us. And so we pray for deliver. Deliver us from evil. And that word deliver or rescue, that's a great word. And it, it helps us again to see our weakness and our dependence on God. You see, we can't be holy without God's powerful grace. We can't escape evil without the Holy Spirit's enabling power. And so we need God to rescue us. We need Him to deliver us. Charles Quarles, one of the commentators I, I use and really appreciate on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, quote, the use of the verb deliver in 6.13 implies the helplessness of the disciple apart from God's intervention. The disciple does not pray that God will assist him in battling the evil one. The disciple is so weak that he is little match for the devil. He needs a savior, not an assistant. He needs a, a hero, not a helper. He needs a champion who will fight the evil one for him and who will snatch him from the clutches of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And so we need a, a powerful savior. And so we pray, Lord, would you deliver us from evil? Would you protect us? Would you overcome the remaining evil in my heart? Would you overcome the evil that I face in this world? And would you overcome the evil one himself so that I can live holy and glorifying to you in this life? Living for God in this sinful world requires God's power. And we cannot battle evil except in the strength of the, of the Lord. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. 
And so we pray for this. We pray that God would protect us from all evil. We pray for protection, for the Lord's strength and might to help us and deliver us from evil. Now before we go on to the verses 14 and 15, I should just say something about the doxology that that some of you see in your Bibles. The English Standard Version, the ESV, has a footnote that says, quote, some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, the oldest manuscripts do not have those lines. Also, the early church fathers in their writings, they don't mention those lines And we don't see those lines until at least after 430 AD. Remember, um, the book of Matthew, for example, was probably written around, around 60 before, before 70 AD for sure. And so we don't see yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory until at least after 430 AD. And what we see when we see those lines is that it's not consistent. Again, Charles Quarles said this. He says, quote, Manuscripts that insert a doxology in Matthew 6.13 have no standard form for it. The most common form was because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. However, some manuscripts omit reference to the kingdom, others to the glory, and still others to the power. Others place a Trinitarian formula of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit which was evidently taken from Matthew 28:19 after the word glory end quote. And so most likely when we think about that these words were added later by the church to 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 end the prayer and they were added later probably for for use in in church services and prayers. <clears throat> and there's nothing wrong with those words and and, and they they kind of fit with scripture, we see those kind of words elsewhere in scripture. The, um, Chronicles, uh, I think it was 1st Chronicles 29, 11 to 13 has, I think that's the right text. Um, I, I think that has a, a very similar kind of ending to a prayer there. Now you can pray them and, and it's fine to do that. It fits well with the hallowed be your name that we saw in verse 10, but we should recognize that, that most likely those words weren't taken uh, they weren't removed from the earliest manuscripts. Most likely they were added to later manuscripts. And so most likely they weren't Jesus' words or Matthew's words. And so that's why we're not going to cover them really much more than that today. And that leads us then into the final words on prayer in, in verses 14 and 15. Jesus circles back to what he said at the end of verse 12. Remember verse 12, "...and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors." And this is the only part of the prayer that Jesus expands on. And I think it shows us how important this this idea of forgiveness is. Verse 14 again says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And I called this the posture for all our petitions. And that's number four in your outline. Forgive and be forgiven. Forgive and be forgiven. Now we need to interpret these lines in their context and and we need to interpret it in line with the rest of Scripture. We actually kind of looked at this already and, and we covered this first and we covered the, the parallel passage in Matthew 18.35 
When we looked at Matthew 5 and verse 7, which says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And what we saw there was that the merciful do not receive mercy because they are merciful. And in the same way, we are not forgiven because we forgive. If forgiving others was the reason or the basis for our forgiveness, then nobody would be forgiven because we are imperfect at forgiveness. We also need to notice that, that it says God is your Father in verse 14 and again in verse 15. And if He's your Father, then you are forgiven already. What Jesus is assuming here then is that we who are forgiven will forgive those who trespass against us. We will be forgiving because we understand what it means to have an unpayable debt of sin and then to have God wipe it away. We will be forgiving because we are those who want to be perfect as our Father is perfect and our Father is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. We will be forgiving because forgiveness honors God and it is His will for us to forgive others. And finally, we will be forgiving at the very least because of this warning in verse 15, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now what does that mean? What does it mean if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses? I think we need to interpret it to mean that if we don't forgive, we will not enjoy God's fatherly fellowship. Just like if we don't confess our sins, we, I don't know if you ever had that. Have you ever had a, a, you ever committed a sin and you haven't confessed it? You haven't repented of it? And you just, you just know that God is not pleased and that there's this kind of separation from you and God? Well, in the same way, if you haven't forgiven somebody that has asked for your forgiveness and you're holding that, that bitterness in your heart against them, then you will, you will experience that same kind of separation between you and God. It's a relational separation. God is still your father, but you won't enjoy his fatherly fellowship. Instead, you're likely to endure his fatherly discipline in a time like that. And so I think we need to interpret it like we did verse 12, not judicially, as in you will go to hell, but relationally. If you don't forgive, you will not enjoy God's presence. And when we look at verse 12 again, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The idea there is not that we forgive. The, the idea of that is that um, when we say as, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven others. We don't mean by as to the same degree we recognize that our debts are much greater than what anyone else would have sinned against us. But we say, just like in the same manner, just like I forgive others, God, I would, I would ask you to forgive me. And so we are those who recognize that, recognizing that we have been forgiven, we are forgiving and we're asking God to forgive us in that same way. And so because we've been forgiven, we forgive. And because we forgive, God also forgives us in this relational sense and we have fellowship with Him. But I should also just warn and we should also be aware and, and concerned that if you have an unbelieving heart, an unforgiving heart, 
If, if, if there is a, a lack of ability in your heart to forgive, it could be a sign that you are not truly a child of God and that you have not truly been forgiven. If we're not a child of God, then our sins have not been forgiven. And so we also need to be careful about that. But our whole prayer then is to be filled with this attitude of forgiveness. We come to God in prayer realizing that we are forgiven and we ask for forgiveness. And we come to God in prayer asking for His name to be hallowed, for His kingdom to come, for His will to be done with this this attitude and recognition that we are sinners forgiven by God. And so from beginning to end, this whole prayer is saturated in this aspect that we have been forgiven. And we ask Him to forgive us our sins, to provide us for our daily bread, and to guard us from future sin, to protect us. And because we are forgiven, we forgive those who trespass against us. Now in conclusion, I thought it would be fitting to ask, how has this three or four part series, how has this little series on prayer changed how you pray? Has it changed anything about how you pray? Will it, will it change anything? If, if, if it hasn't changed anything yet, will it change anything going forward? Have you been praying more? Have you prayed more for God's glory, for His name to be hallowed? Have you prayed for His kingdom to come and for His will to be done? What about our utter dependence on God physically and spiritually? Have you, have you come to see that, that you need to ask God because you are dependent on Him, that He is sovereign and that you need His help to provide your provision to pardon your sins and to protect you from future sin? This is what we do as believers. This is our righteousness that we practice our righteousness and part of our righteousness is by praying in the way that the Lord taught us to pray. And so when we pray, which is what we do as believers, again, it's verse five, when you pray, when we pray, we're to pray in the way that the Lord has taught us in, in this text. Well, Father, we thank you for our time together. And we ask even now that you would help us to pray and to pray in this way that you have taught us. Pray that you would be glorified. Pray for your future kingdom purposes to come to fruition. We pray, Father, even now that your will would be done. We don't want our will to be done. We want your will to be done. We would love to see heaven on earth. We would love to see a a revival of your purposes in this world. We'd love to see people living righteously and holily and in a God-glorifying manner. And so we pray that you would save sinners and that you would help us as your people to, to do your will on earth, even as it's done in heaven. Father, we pray that you would help us to pray for our daily bread. And we ask you now, give us this day our daily bread. Provide our physical needs. We need you to sustain our earthly life. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us of our sins. Even as we come now into the Lord's Supper, we ask again that you would cleanse us from any sin and purify us from it. Even as we forgive our debtors, as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us, Father, we pray that you would forgive us in that same way 
and restore to us that fatherly relationship that we have with you. Cleanse us from the dust on our feet and from the sin in our hearts and minds and actions. And Father, we pray that you would not lead us into temptation. We pray that you would deliver us from evil and that you would keep us from sin so that we could be holy in this world. We pray that you would help us to fight against the sin that remains in our hearts, to resist the sin that is in this world that stains our thoughts and our minds, and ultimately even to deliver us and protect us from the devil himself who would love to destroy us and destroy your glory. And so, Father, we pray all of these things in the name of our beloved Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.